We are on part four of this series that we started four weeks ago called Jesus is All the World to Me. And today we are in the book of Colossians, um, chapter three. And um, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. But as we begin, I wanted to just say that, that God has given us some some basic principles to guide us in, in many, if not all, situations in our lives. And I do, I, you know, I, I like that song. I think I like uh, Phil Wickham's version of it better, but um, I do like that song. And, you know, the battle does belong to him. And, and I guess when I was thinking about that as I was sitting there praying, I'm thinking, I just hope and pray that when the Lord comes or that he finds us faithful, that he finds all of us faithful to him. But God has given us some, some basic principles for us to follow in all, in, in all situations in our lives. The first principle is this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31b. And it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the first principle I want to share. You know, we cannot sin to the glory of God. Doesn't that make sense? We cannot sin to the glory of God. So let us be sure that what we are doing is for his glory. The second principle is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. And this is what it says. It says, always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we cannot thank the Lord while we are doing a certain thing, then we shouldn't be doing it. Make sense? And at the same time, let us be thankful Christians for all that God does for us. The third principle is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, and, and the, the thing that I wanted to share with you on this one is this, is that I believe that we need to pray about everything. We need to pray about everything. Do you believe with all of your heart that prayer changes things? Do you believe that it is a God thing, not just coincidence when those things happen? I think that we need to remember that. The fourth principle, which is found at the beginning of our passage that we're going to be talking about today is Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. Suppose you wonder, should I go to this place? Or should I go there? Could you be there in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Suppose um, if, if we cannot do what we plan for the glory of God, if we cannot give thanks for it, if we cannot do it in his name, if, if we would not feel right in praying about it, then guess what, folks? I would say that we probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. This means that we must be saturated, we must be saturated with the word of God so that the Holy Spirit can bring 
the word to remembrance to guide us through every phase of our life. That's how important it is to be in the word and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. That indwelling that we have of the Holy Spirit to be our guide. And this is especially true when it comes to the family unit which God created. You know, whenever I share in a, at a funeral message, I always talk to them about the fact that they're not there to that funeral service by accident. This is a God thing because God created the family unit. God is the one who created family. And so this morning we're going to talk about that a little bit. It was during a rehearsal for her wedding that this nervous bride was having a difficult time remembering all the details. And if you remember to your wedding day, you understand that. Her kind pastor took her aside at the end of the night. He said this. He said, when you enter the church tomorrow, you will be walking down the same aisle that you've always walked down for many times before this. So what you need to do is this. Concentrate on the aisle. That's all you got to do. Concentrate on the aisle. And when you get halfway down the aisle, concentrate on the altar. Okay? And then when you, when you reach the end of the aisle, your groom will be waiting for you, so concentrate on him. So, you know, focus on the aisle, then look at the altar, and then finally lock your eyes on your man. And you, and you'll be there. You'll, you'll have done it. And so that seemed to help her a lot. So the next day on her wedding day, this beautiful but nervous bride walked flawlessly down the aisle. She made it all the way down. But the people were taken back a little bit when they heard her repeating these words during the processional. Aisle, altar, him. Aisle, altar, him. And what they were thinking was this. I'll alter him. <laughs> well, let me tell you, folks, um, that, that, that bride probably had a number of well-wishers. <laughs> Many of us get married with the goal of altering our future spouse. And I believe that some wives call that leash training. <laughs> I had to throw that one in there, sorry. That, that wasn't very nice. Anyway, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Colossians, which is, I said, it's all about Jesus. The book of Colossians is all about Jesus, absolutely all about him. Jesus is the center point of history. He is the center point of history and ought to be the center of our lives as well. The question I asked you is this. Is Jesus all the world to you? We've asked that question each week. In the first chapter uh, that um, Paul describes who Jesus is and his supremacy over everything. Remember he said in verse 15, all things were created by him and for him. And so in the second chapter, Paul assures us that we can find fulfillment and completeness in Jesus. And the phrase that I use, does anybody remember what it is? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is more than enough, isn't he? Jesus is enough. And then the third chapter, which we began last week begins to describe this all about Jesus' life. And by the time we reach the end of this chapter, which we're going to reach today, 
what we do is we come face to face with the reality that if we're serious about following Jesus, Jesus will alter our lives. He will change your life. But you have to allow him to do that. He isn't going to come in unless you, unless you allow him to come in. Jesus will alter our lives. And so Paul begins the second half of this chapter um, this way. He reads this. This is what it says. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, everything we do, shouldn't it be done for Jesus? Shouldn't it be done? He, he then goes on to outline three very important areas of our lives that ought to be lived to the glory of Christ. And I question whether or not I should have preached this message today because some of this isn't going to pertain to you, but you know what? It pertains to all of us, really, when you think about it. There are three areas. There, there actually, it's, it's really dealing with three relationships in our lives. The first area of our lives that Paul addresses here is our marriage partnerships. Our marriage partnerships. Um, and here's what Paul had to say. Here's what Paul writes. He says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, the command for wives to submit to their husbands has been both confusing and challenging for contemporary families. I'm going to tell you that right now. For many, it offends our, our modern sense of equality. And I'm going to tell you, I had a, I had a couple one time that I was doing a marriage counseling and I was going to do a premarital counseling session with them. And the, I usually do the first counseling session. I sit down and I go over the wedding, the, the wedding that I do, the, the, the ceremony itself. And I was going through this ceremony and this lady stops me halfway through there and says, um, when I got to the part there where it says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands and everything, she said, I want that part taken out. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, that's the word of God. And so um, I ended up not marrying them. <laughs> I ended up not marrying them because she really was insistent upon that. But I will tell you, you know, uh, but here, think about it from this way. I'm going to try to explain this command for us today because I think it is, there's a lot of confusion around it. First, it's important to note this, that husbands are also commanded to submit to their wives. Did you know that? Husbands are also commanded. Elsewhere, Paul says this. He says this in, in um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He writes about husbands and wives. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he tells us all to do. We are all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember what we said at the beginning. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. So out of reverence and respect for Jesus Christ, husbands and wives ought to submit to each other. That's pretty plain and simple, isn't it? That is, we, we respect each other and place the other person's wants and needs above our own. That's what we do. However, and I probably, you're probably, gonna, the ladies are probably going to smack me with this, but men are only instructed to submit to their wives once, whereas women are reminded to submit to their husbands several times in the scripture. Boo! <laughs> but similarly, wives 
Wives are never, listen to this now, wives are never commanded to love their husbands. Did you know that? Wives are never commanded to love their husbands. While husbands are commanded to love their wives multiple times in the scripture. So I am convinced that there is a very good reason for this. And I believe that God is reminding us over and over again what our spouse needs from us. You know, countless psychologists and marriage counselors counselors will tell you that most women's number one emotional need in marriage is, is love and affection. What you don't often hear nearly often as much is that men crave respect and admiration just as deeply as women do love and affection. The problem is that we often get into this negative cycle sometimes. When a wife feels unloved, her first tendency is to act in ways that are disrespectful to her husband. And when husbands feel disrespected, his natural tendency is to react in ways that feel unloving to his wife. It just seems to work that way. A few years ago, I don't know how many of you have ever read this book or saw this book, Dr. Emerson Egerich and his wife Sarah co-wrote a book called Love and Respect. Anybody ever see this book? It's called Love and Respect. Well, in prepping for this book, they asked 7,000 people this question. 7,000 people this question. When you are in conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 7,000 people, they asked this question. Do you feel unloved or disrespected? Of those who responded, 72% of the women said they felt unloved. Listen to this. 83% of the men said they felt disrespected. That's kind of interesting. You know, research reveals that during marital conflict, a wife most often reacts when feeling unloved and a husband often reacts when feeling disrespected. And it's no wonder then that the Bible says that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, there it says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and, and the wife must respect her husband. There, there's no coincidence in that, guys. There's no coincidence there. This is a God thing. This is Paul knew, and so he put it down there. Men are, are most powerfully motivated by respect. Marriage and, and family therapist Mark Gunger says this. He writes this. He says, so what is it that men want? In, in, in a word, men want respect. That means a man wants to be held in esteem and to be shown consideration and appreciation even when he makes mistakes. And trust me, we make mistakes all the time. He, he wants to be seen as a hero, especially in the eyes of his bride. He needs someone to believe in him when the odds are stacked against him. Ladies, this works in your favor because when he feels he is being looked up to as the head of the household, which God has called him to do, he will automatically allow his wife to become the neck and she will be able to point her man in the right direction if she needs to. Similarly, women are emotionally fueled by love. And according to Dr. William Harley, he says this, to most women, to most women, affection symbolizes security, protection, comfort, approval, 
virtually important commodities. These are they're, they're absolutely vital commodities in, in a woman's eyes. So husbands, we can show affection in countless ways. We can show our affection by a hug or by a greeting card or maybe even a bouquet of flowers or an invitation to go to dinner or holding hands or, or opening the door for your wife or, or taking a walk together or, or buying her some tools or, or better yet, buying her a gun. <laughs> or maybe it's just saying the words, I love you. Please remember that your spouse does not have to earn your love and respect. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to deserve your love and respect. Rather, Christian wives respect their husbands because of Jesus. Christian husbands love their wives because of Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's out of reverence for Jesus that we show affection and admiration for our spouses. But the marriage partnership is just the first relationship that Jesus ought to alter Paul talks about parenting and children next. You know, at every age, children present parenting challenges, don't they? Absolutely. You know, with infants, parents have to cope with the physical exhaustion from sleep deprivation and the nonstop cycle of feeding and burping and cleaning and, and, and comforting a fussy baby. And then during the toddler years, parents have to deal with this 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 opinionated little person who is simultaneously trying to figure things out while trying to run the world and then and then we get to this the early school age years where academics and social challenges and parents you know have to have to figure out how to support and guide their children while also setting some sensible standards some sensible limits some sensible rules for them to follow and then you get into the tween and teen years you know, and, and then you really get concerned about the, the academics, and then there's also these social challenges that, that will intensify, and, and teenagers will become moody and dramatic. And, and even, even when the, the children grow up and move out, parents face the job of staying connected with their, with their kids and continuing to offer godly counsel about major decisions. But sometimes those kids don't want you to do that. They don't even care that what you, what you think. But here's what Paul says about the parent-child relationship. He says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. You know, he starts off saying, Jesus is happy when children obey their parents in everything. Can I get an amen on that one? Not only is Jesus joyful, but every parent on the planet is pleased when their children obey their parents and everything. You know, this is a reoccurring command throughout Scripture. Absolutely. This is what the Bible says in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. That's what it says. And again, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Children... Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Family, a family is not a democracy. 
Did you know that? A family is not a democracy. Parents need to be in charge. That's just plain, pure, and simple. Family is not a democracy. Parents need to be in charge. God has placed parents in authority over children. Plain, pure, and simple. So it's not just our own authority that you're establishing. You're establishing God's authority as well. And if we make kids the centerpiece of the family, what happens is is that we teach them that they're the center of the universe, that, that their happiness is the, the only thing that reigns supreme, you know, and, and nothing can be further from the truth. And, and I've always wondered that about, you know, my relationship with my children, if I did that to them, made them the center of the universe. We've got to be careful that we don't do that. Too many pampered kids get out into the world, and they are shocked that the world does not revolve around them. <laughs> You know, they're, they're prince and princesses at home, but they're, they're little peons in life when they, when they get out there and they can't handle that. And all kids need to do is go into the service to realize that they're peons. Because if you're in the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force, you're going to realize that you're not the center of your universe. Your sergeant's going to be, or whoever it is that's leading you. And if you don't do what they say, you're dead meat. I think the best preparation for children in, in are, are the, the best preparation for the for the real world is for is for children to be, you know, a valued family member, but not be all and, and end all. I, I think that they need to be part of the family, but they're not the most important. We're all important. And then the second thing here that I want to point out is this is that kids need parents to be parents. You know, they, they want parents to be parents. They, they, their display of power and rebellion are test of your willingness to parent them. And if you don't establish your, your parental authority, no one else will. The school's not going to. The media is definitely not going to. Um, and certainly their peers are not going to. That is for sure. So, so don't be afraid to take charge in your home. It is your home. Take charge in it. You know, what you say goes, you know, but, but your authority must be a healthy one. You can't stand there and scream and scream at your children and expect good results from that. I knew this guy. I knew this guy who absolutely embarrassed his children in front of so many people, and he did it at every single church function. I mean, absolutely embarrassed them. And it came to the point where I actually started feeling bad. Even though the children might have done something wrong, I felt bad for them because he embarrassed them in front of everybody. You know, the scripture says there, you know, don't don't embitter your children. Paul tells fathers not to embitter or discourage their children. And he elaborates on this elsewhere. Look at look what he says. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Now a word to you parents, don't keep scolding and nagging your children making them angry and resentful. Rather, bring them up in the, the loving discipline of the Lord himself, the, the Lord himself approves, with suggestions and godly advice. You know, your authority as a parent needs to be a display of love more than a display of power. Absolutely. So how does that look in real life? You know, well, I think it's going to be different for everyone. 
Parenting is more of an art than it is a science. And we're all going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, you know, as children grow up, they're going to make mistakes. We all do. But there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Um, it's not X's and O's on a chalkboard, not arrows or straight lines. Sometimes you have to go with your gut, but the goal is always the same. This is the goal. Teach your children to love the Lord, to put others first, to be givers and not takers, and to realize that it makes a difference how you conduct yourself. So kids, obey your parents. Parents, encourage your children. And finally, in addition to our our partnerships and parental relationships, Paul talks about how Jesus should alter or affect our personal relationships, our personal relationships. So as Paul continues, what he does is he actually addresses this next section to Christian slaves. He talks about Christian slaves. Slavery was an accepted way of life in Paul's day, and most homes had slaves in them. So this fits in the the general section of how to live out our faith in the family because they were part of the family. The Colossian church, no doubt, probably had slaves and owners as members of the church. In fact, church was probably the only place in that society where slaves and free people would gather together without distinction. You know, while Paul did not call believers to overturn this institution of slavery, these verses helped to bring about change from the outside. The Roman Empire ultimately lost its commitment to slavery because the gospel, what happened was the gospel penetrated further into the culture and more and more masters and slaves started treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what they did. Just look at the book of Philemon and how how they treated each other. While there are not exact similarities to the workplace, I think this passage can apply to our jobs as well. For those of you who are still working at your job, um, here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. He says, You slaves must always obey your earthly masters, not only trying to please them when they are watching you, but all the time. Obey them willingly because of your love for the Lord and because you want to please him. Work hard and cheerfully at all you do, just as though you were working for the Lord and not merely for your masters. Remembering that it is the Lord Jesus who is going to pay you, giving you your full portion of all he owns. He is the one who you are really working for. He is the one. In short, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, do it for Jesus. Do it for Christ. Remember we said it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about him. That includes our profession. There's two common mantras that that are mentioned in our culture today. The one is this, I hate my job. The second one is this, my boss is a jerk. I hate my job and my boss is a jerk. Well, I want you guys to know one thing right here. I love my job and my boss is not a jerk. Not at all. You hear those statements quite often. According to a Gallup poll, more than half of the U.S. workforce, which is about 70 million employees, 
either are just enduring their job or actively hate where they work. That's sad. You know, with that level of dissatisfaction, it's no surprise that we hear so many negative comments about it, either in in personal conversations or through social media. In other words, if you don't like your job, well, welcome to the club, because there's a lot of us out here that don't. You know, most wage earners dread Monday, they dream of Friday, and they drag through the rest of it. So, So what's God's solution for that? What is God's solution? His solution is this. Do it for Jesus. Regardless of what we are doing, or regardless of what, what we do for a living, or uh, we, are, we are working for the Lord, period. You know, our real boss, our, our real manager, our real owner, our real CEO is Jesus Christ. Your career consumes half of your life. Shouldn't it glorify God? I mean, think about it. It it consumes half of your life. Shouldn't it be to the glory of the Lord? You know, don't those 40 to 60 hours a week, I don't know how many hours a week you work, but, you know, normal is like 40, but I know people that work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Shouldn't those hours, those 40 to 60 hours a week, belong to him just as much as the one or two hours that you spend here in church on Sunday or, or Wednesday? Paul thought so. He absolutely thought so. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. He once said this about this verse. He says, If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go out and sweep those streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep those streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Amen? So as I close with you this morning, when Jesus is the Lord of your life, what it does is it's supposed to affect your whole life. Your whole life. It's supposed to affect your marriage, your family, your work ethic, it's supposed to affect everything about you. Out of reverence for Jesus, husbands ought to love their wives. Out of respect and reverence for Jesus, wives ought to respect their husbands. Out of reverence for Jesus, children ought to obey their parents. Out of reverence for Jesus, parents ought to bring up their children in loving discipline. Out of reverence for Jesus, in whatever we do, we ought to work at it with all of our hearts as if we were working for the Lord and not for people. Amen? So the question I have for you is this, is where does Jesus stand in your life? Is Jesus all the world to you? Remember the song, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad because he's my friend. Verse 4 says, Jesus is all the world to me. I want no better friend. I trust him now. 
I'll trust him when life's fleeting days shall end. Beautiful life with such a friend. Beautiful life that has no end. Eternal life, eternal joy. He's my friend. As the band makes their way up this morning, as we close this chapter of Colossians and head into chapter 4 next week, as our final message in this, this book of Colossians, my prayer is that you, that if you need more of Jesus in any area of your life, absolutely any area of your life, and you need help with that, that you wouldn't hesitate to come to me or to one of our elders, you know, for help, or so that we could pray with you, that we could encourage you, that we could lift you up. And this morning, if, if you need to rededicate your life to Christ, the invitation is always open. If you want to come and, and be buried in the watery graves of baptism this morning, the invitation is extended to you to do that this morning. Whatever you need this morning, the invitation is always open for you to come. So we're going to come as we stand and we're going to close our time together by singing our, our closing song. And that is, Your Grace is Enough. What a great song to end with.